Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, Jesse. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? I'm okay. I'm John. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, John. Hi, Brian. Hello. Nice to meet you as well. Sorry to keep you waiting. There's never a dull moment in Canadian politics these days. Anything interesting happening over there or not so much? (laughs) So John and Brian asked me to hop on a call a couple months ago. John Matheson, the chief of staff to the federal heritage minister, and Brian McKay, a senior policy advisor in that same ministry. They wanted to chat with me about the new legislation they were cooking up, the Online News Act. It's the Canadian version of a law that first popped up in Australia where Google and Facebook are now forced by law to pay news companies for the articles that show up on their platforms. I know that from a policy point of view, we don't always agree. The minister really believes that it's important not just to talk to people who agree with us, but also to talk to people who don't agree. So yeah, this was a new one for me. Like usually I'm the one asking the government if they'll talk to me, not the other way around. And usually they don't. But John and Brian reached out and they assured me they were eager for my input. And anyhow, though we may have had our differences, weren't we all basically after the same thing? But maybe stepping back, we could just talk about overall your views on news media and how we can ensure that at least the, I think we have a common goal of a, a healthy, free and independent press and start from there, really. That's, that's kind of the premise of the meeting. Maybe you could just take me through like how you see this working, like based on where you're at with the policy right now, what would it look like in practice? Like if Canada Land wanted to pursue compensation from... Facebook, Google, what would the process be under this legislation? I mean, the template really is the Australian model. I think we agree. I I personally am concerned about accountability and 
ensuring that there's transparency in, in this model. And I, I'd like to hear your views on that. But um, on uh, the specific question of Canada land, do you have deals with Facebook or Google now? No. Okay. So I think, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but once our legislation is out there, comes into force, Canada land would be potentially eligible. I think they're, you know, we're, we're very cognizant of the critique specifically of the Australian model, as John alluded to, particularly on the transparency piece and eligibility. Well, they both said transparency. And they said that Canada Land might be eligible for some of that big tech money. I don't know. Maybe we were all after the same thing. We don't think, I'll just be blunt about it, Brian. We don't think that politicians should be choosing who's in, who's out. One of the reasons we chose the Australian model is that it does limit government involvement. Um, And that is a principle that we're trying to apply. So far, I was loving these guys. But then things got weird okay um i share before we go further jesse sorry to interrupt are we is this i mean is this do do you agree that this is a not for publication meeting (laughs) guys i'm a reporter who covers the media (laughs) yeah i know but we're you're the federal government you guys reached out to me (laughs) asking to discuss with me a major piece of media legislation. Like, why Why would we have that conversation in secret? We, it's not in secret. We actually just, we want your views. We, we, we're not trying to... Like, I want to give them to you. <laughs> so so can, can we agree, though, that this is on background and not for publication? We could not. I did not see why secrecy was needed. The impact that these laws and policies are already having on the media industry are real. Last week on the show, you heard about how a board of five people have been determining for the government in secret which news outlets are and are not eligible for government subsidies. And you heard about how the decisions they make about which news organizations qualify and which ones don't and for how much. They are all decisions that you are not allowed to know about. Today, we're going to look at the knock-on effects. What happens when the government starts sorting news companies into two categories? Qualified with government status and everybody else. We're going to look at the perhaps unintended consequences of the media bailout and the Online News Act, which was tabled just last week. So last week was the newsreader's perspective. But today, I'm looking at this as a publisher. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Adam O'Neill, Mark Cassis Cordero, Laura Beamish, Sean Patton, Carly Warren, Justin Hall, Sarah Fagelman, and Ian. Hey, Canada Landers. My name is Ian, the teacher, and I work at a public high school southeast of Squatches, also known as East Vancouver. I started listening to Canada Land during the Gomeshi scandal and discovered Jesse Brown had tried to live my dream of shit disturbing at the CBC. I subscribed to Canada Land because so many episodes and shows have provided me with loads of powerful info and perspectives. Also, it's a union shop. Solidarity and thank you all for making the fight for a better future a little easier. 
Canadian news is in crisis. In the last 15 years, hundreds of newsrooms have closed across Canada. For decades, advertising revenue has supported quality news content. But today, a small number of tech giants take most of that revenue, often by displaying Canadian news content, while news outlets receive a fraction of what they used to. That's a promo video that the government posted last week to announce its newly tabled Online News Act. If everything goes according to their plan, within a year or two, Google and Facebook will be forced to start paying Canadian news organizations ongoing fees for, well, it's actually been really unclear exactly what they're supposed to pay us for. What is crystal clear is that they're going to have to pay or face steep fines as high as $15 million. The Online News Act is one of two pieces of legislation the Liberals have promised in order to help save the media industry. The first, again, was the government subsidy package. You've heard me call it the newspaper bailout. That came into effect two years ago, moving money to newsrooms from taxpayers. This second piece of legislation has a different sugar daddy in mind, big tech. And that might sound very good for news publishers indeed, a limitless flow of resources from a deep-pocketed and far less sympathetic source, but it has already gotten a lot more complicated than that. Because, you see, this story did not start last week when the Heritage Minister rolled out his bill. Let's back things up. Let me take you back to 2017. Justin Trudeau's government was just two years into its first term, still looking relatively shiny and new. Back in those days, Facebook was still called Facebook. Starting today, our company is now Meta because they had not yet been forced to rebrand after becoming public enemy number one. 2017 Trudeau loved tech. He had campaigned as a youthful, digitally savvy candidate, and his cabinet's early relationship with the tech giants was downright cozy. Facebook's top guy in Canada then, as now, happened to be a longtime Liberal Party insider. Kevin Chan, once the head of policy for the Liberal Party's former leader, Michael Ignatieff. In that honeymoon period, Trudeau cabinet minister Karina Gould actually praised Facebook for defending democracy. I am absolutely delighted to see Facebook taking a step in the right direction today in addressing the challenges of the digital era and the continued protection of our democratic process. And his heritage minister at the time, Melanie Jolie, brushed aside pressure from Canada's dusty old CanCon industry. She was not going to tax or regulate digital innovators like Netflix, she was going to partner with them. And as for this idea that had started to float around, this idea of bailing out Canada's newspapers, well, that was a non-starter. In 2017, Jolie said, quote, our approach will not be to bail out industry models that are no longer viable. Rather, we will focus our efforts on supporting innovation, experimentation, and transition to digital. But then a bunch of shit happened. A Canadian man has blown the whistle on his own company. Are you accusing Cambridge Analytica of planting fake news? Absolutely. The recent scandal, it affected 87 million because of lax data practices by the company going back years. Will you commit to changing all the user default settings to minimize the collection and use of users' data? Are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Fake news grew in infamy as an international scourge. Facebook, its enabler. 
Real News saw its opportunity. An opportunity to assert itself as the antidote to fake news, a crucial pillar of democracy. And it was an opportunity to thus demand financial support from government. This opportunity could not have come at a more dire moment. The bottom had fallen out of ad revenues, and only 9% of Canadians were paying for any news in a given year. And so, some publishers came right out and said it. Their newspapers were going to die if the government didn't step in. And so, Canadian newspapers dusted off their lobby group and started pounding the pavement in Ottawa. Their lobby group had been called Newspapers Canada, but had recently been rebranded to News Media Canada. They declared themselves the, quote, voice of Canada's print and digital media industry, even though they had an official rule that you couldn't even be a voting member unless your news company published its news on paper. While they were lobbying the government in back rooms, they were also slamming the government on front pages. Canadian newspapers ran editorial after editorial, demanding financial support from the feds. And it worked. A little. The Liberals pledged $50 million to help local journalism, with a focus on small community outlets. Post-media CEO Paul Godfrey took that as an insult. He threatened further cuts at his papers if the funding was not expanded. It doesn't help us at all. It's not even meant for us. It's meant for uh, areas in Canada which have lost their uh, existing outlet. So this is a token that doesn't not even really a meaningful thing. This is, this is really an insult to the entire industry. Local newspapers are failing everywhere. It's better to give them the ones that are still surviving rather than to try and get them to start up because that's not going to succeed. It'll be wasted money. What we are doing, we're going to have to make more cuts in order to survive. And that means poor journalism. The public shaming apparently paid off because in the 2019 budget, the government announced its media bailout worth $600 million to newspapers over five years. But even that was not enough. It was never going to be enough. On this show in 2017, this is what the newspaper lobby group's leader, Winnipeg Free Press publisher Bob Cox, had to say. I know that this idea that it's some kind of bailout for poorly run companies is certainly out there. And it's one of the criticisms. But I think the thing you have to remember is that a new news media company uh, is not going to be saved by a small subsidy from the federal government. I'll give you an example from my own company. My own company last year had expenses of $75 million. Our revenue from the previous year fell by $8.5 million. $2 million is not going to save this company. The thing that's going to do that is good management and some kind of a plan to build a future business model. This is really an effort to preserve the journalism we do. Um, it won't save this company or, for that matter, any other newspaper company. Listening to newspaper publishers complain that the amount of public money they're getting is too small and could never make up for their losses. Well, as a publisher of a tiny news outlet, that was frustrating for me to hear. And frankly, difficult to report on in an unbiased way because the bailout itself was designed to exclude media organizations like mine. Listen, these days, 25% of people get news from podcasts. But audio journalism, along with video journalism, were explicitly carved out. Not just from the wage subsidies, which we have decided not to take anyhow. No, we're not even eligible for the other programs, like the ability to give our listeners tax deductions for themselves when they subscribe to our podcasts. 
I brought this up with Professor Colette Brin, the chair of the government board that decides who is and who is not a QCJO, a qualified Canadian journalism organization. That's a really good point. I mean, the idea of including podcasts is certainly something we've been discussing, but, you know, our, our board is not, we don't have any advisory capacity in terms of the legislation itself. Yeah. But uh, definitely podcasts are a really important part of news nowadays. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any perfect solution. I mean, I still believe in this program, but I understand these concerns that you have. It's very, you know, it, it is very troublesome to hear. Yeah. It's existential because uh, we built a company that actually is working, that, that, has, that has actually uh, stayed- I, I mean, I would be very concerned if QCGO became the only way for a news organization to exist. And we do have other models. You know, there are other models that, that do function and are providing a quality service, well, for sure. The model it's worked. Just, uh, the model worked until QCJO happened because, if look, it's a very simple thing. Like it's market interference. Like if I'm if I'm competing against a competitor and and we've both determined that we can sell an advertisement for a dollar or we can sell a subscription for a dollar and that'll cover our costs and then we're just competing on quality. Who's got the better? Yeah, news? I don't think I need to explain to you that it was not working. Well, like a lot of organizations, and it's not just a question of old dinosaur media not adapting. I mean, there was a crisis, there was a structural, and there still is a structural crisis in funding journalism. It's not because Canada land is working that journalism in general is, the, is, is, is viable. No, but, there, but some of us risked a lot to build things that yeah. are working, yeah. and I'm not the only one. And now we're in a situation where my competitor is getting 50 cents from the government so they can charge 52 cents instead of a dollar and they can undercut me. I got a bit heated there. Um, Let me slow down and maybe explain why I feel so strongly about this. In 2020, when the media bailout kicked in and the big checks started flowing to newspapers, the government paid qualifying news organizations, almost all of them newspapers, arrears, retroactive salary subsidies going back to the start of 2019. It was a lot, but it was just the start. When the pandemic hit, the government promised immediate aid to the newspapers, additional aid in the form of tens of millions of dollars in ad buys for public health messages purchased by federal and provincial governments and benefiting some, but not all, news organizations. Again, that money was focused on the newspapers. Then there was $30 million from the Heritage Ministry for COVID recovery funds. And then a $10 million top-up. It was a lot of cash, all at once. And once they got it, well, that's when some of Canada's biggest newspapers decided to move aggressively into the podcast business. In March 2020, the Toronto Star launched a daily podcast about Canadian news. In May 2021, the Globe and Mail launched a daily podcast about Canadian news. How do I know that they were trying to make their own version of Canada Land? Because they hired away two of Canada Land's producers to make it. So, but but Canada Land is kind of a niche. I, I know you hate that, but but do you really have direct competitors? Are you kidding me? The Globe and Mail hired away our is staffers. Is the Globe and Mail your competitor? Of course oh, they yes, are. But, oh, and in terms of in terms of your workforce, okay. Do you want? They're they're our competitor in terms of. Uh, 
Not in of, terms of audience, but oh, in terms of- Oh, of course of, they are. Of co- They are a competitor in terms of stories. We're competing with them to get scoops. They are a competitor in terms of news subscriptions. People aren't going to get an infinite number of subscriptions. Mm. They are a competitor in terms of talent. They hire away our people to launch podcasts that cover Canadian news, right? I actually worked with Kasha. She's amazing. She's wonderful. God bless them. Good luck to her. Uh, but- that is a newspaper that is owned by the richest family in Canada. And I'll tell you something, though podcast companies are excluded from QCJO status and from the subsidy, I suspect that the way it's set up, podcast workers at newspapers are getting their salaries subsidized. So explain that one to me, how that's possible. Oh, that, I'm not going to explain that. <laughs> I mean, that's way beyond my... my... My job description. But you could see that that's egregious. I am taking note of all of this. I am taking note of all of this. And I, you know, it's a very, it's a broad issue, right? And with all, and it's, it's all kinds of complexities. I mean, we're, you know, we're applying this specific thing and I understand it, it could have impacts on other aspects of the industry. I was surprised by how surprised she seemed to learn that the plan that she's a part of to help some news companies actually hurt other news companies. I mean, what did they expect would happen? But that's not the extent of it. As you heard, the newspapers knew that they needed a lot more than $600 million split between them in order to stay afloat. And if they had maxed out the cash that the government was willing to cough up, well, maybe there was somebody else they could target. They set their sights on Google and Facebook. Rival news chains across the country coordinated tactics, each publishing blank front pages on their print editions so that readers could imagine if the news wasn't there. The Toronto Star launched an ongoing, highly critical series of articles all about Google and Facebook. It's called Defanging Big Tech. Article after article about the urgent need for the government to clamp down on Silicon Valley. The defanging big tech series even had its own logo, the word tech drawn with actual pointy fangs. Lobby groups for other parts of the media industry got involved too. Friends of Canadian Broadcasting plastered giant mugshots of Mark Zuckerberg on buildings across this country, depicting the Facebook CEO as a dangerous criminal, wanted for news burglary. I'm so thrilled to announce the launch of our Wanted campaign. Large Zuckerberg Wanted posters, like the one behind me, are currently going up in seven Canadian cities. This campaign is about drawing public and political attention to Facebook's industrial-scale news theft and to Ottawa's tacit approval of this practice. If the decline and disappearance of professional, responsible Canadian journalism is allowed to proceed unchecked, The hate and the vitriol that runs wild on Facebook will be all we have left. It was not subtle, but again, it worked. It helped that Australia went first. News Media Canada got 115 registered lobbyist meetings with the government over a three-year period. It's about one every 10 days. I mean, now the government was firmly in the saving newspapers business, I guess it just made sense for them to team up and plan together. And this is what the next heritage minister in this process, Stephen Guibault, had to say about it in 2021 on CNN, where he suffered the indignity of a pretty significant mispronunciation. 
With me now is Stephen Gilbo. He's a minister of Canadian heritage and a member of the Canadian Parliament. Uh, minister, thank you for joining me. Uh, you're coming on because you're watching this like uh, your, your, your fellow uh, leaders all around the world. Is Canada That's correct. going to follow Australia's lead? I have um, announced publicly that Canada will be tabling, I will be tabling legislation in the coming months um, to, to do, in essence, what Australia is, uh, is trying to do. In essence, yes. It would take another year, not months, and it would take yet another heritage minister. But this takes us to today, and yes, the Online News Act has now been tabled. And I, for one, leading up to it, was terrified. I felt pretty certain that this was going to be just another subsidy scheme tailor-made by newspaper lobbyists to benefit newspapers. But I was wrong. We have now had a few days to read this new law, and it surprised me. The Online News Act is not limited to written media. It's not just for QCJOs. Podcasts can qualify. In fact, Every existing news organization can potentially qualify. This bill will cover TV news organizations, radio news organizations, YouTubers doing news, anybody who's making news content that gets shared on Facebook or that pops up on Google can potentially soon force Facebook and Google to pay them. You just need government approval first. So the Online News Act now puts all news media in Canada under some form of government aid, either direct or indirect. All of the news media, that is, except for new news media. Startups. That's next. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Okay, quick recap. So far, you've heard about how the government said that, yeah, they would be funding the news, but they were not going to be picking winners and losers. And then... They did. Then you heard about how the government said, okay, we're going to be funding the news, but we will not be bailing out obsolete business models. And then they did. You heard about how government said that the whole process would be totally transparent. And yeah, you get the picture. Now we're going to focus on something else they said. They said that media subsidies would be about boosting innovation. But all of the media subsidies so far explicitly exclude startups. Well, first of all, we don't exclude startups. Professor Bryn may have a broader definition of startup than I do, but here are the facts. You cannot get QCJO status or Online News Act status with the CRTC to launch a new media company. 
You need to have an established track record, and you need to employ at least two full-time journalists. Freelancers don't count. And the problem is, in Canada, that is not how innovative news companies have actually started up. A lot of different models have been experimented with, but the most viable one for journalism in this country has so far been sole proprietor entrepreneurs. Tim Bousquet of the Halifax Examiner, Joey Coleman of the Public Record, Maureen Gugu of Kukukwes News, Jeremy Klazus of The Sprawl, me, I could go on. All of us journalists who risked our own money and our own time to launch news sites in communities that desperately needed news or news sites about topics that were going uncovered. Many of us have slowly reached profitability and then went from hiring freelancers to hiring staffers. In my opinion, if there is a future for sustainable news coverage in Canada, it'll be through dozens of new, tiny digital news organizations like that. There are certainly enough talented, laid-off journalists to start them. And if they did, this country might find a better way out of this news crisis than keeping newspapers on permanent life support. But it is that crucial first year, that make-it-or-break-it year, where you either take off or you run out of runway and go bust. Where you might have to max out your credit cards or put up your own house as collateral for a small business loan, the stakes for entrepreneurs like that are incredibly high, and that level of risk scares off most people who are thinking about launching a news startup. There is nothing in any of these subsidies to help anybody with that year. The way I understand it is that you need a track record to be, you know, to, for our, in order for us to assess if you're producing original news content, you need enough of a track record. I don't think if you've been up for three months, that's going to be enough. In, in other fields, uh, like in tech, there's a lot of uh, money for seed funding for incubation. It's a lot easier to give a little mm -hmm. bit. Well, maybe maybe there should be a seed grant. Maybe there should be a, another program for that. But that's not the purpose of this program. This is not a, an innovation grant. Uh, um, uh, this uh, is uh, a, a tax credit program for journalism. But a moment ago, it's you were not, telling me. It's not specifically about innovation. You mentioned innovation in your opening letter in the annual report that this is a program for innovation. Oh, it's an innovative program, oh, but it's not a program to support innovation. The programs might not be designed to support innovation, but there are cases where they are undeniably helping small publishers who made it through that difficult first year. Tim Bousquet was originally opposed to the bailout. He wrote that the government was putting his Halifax examiner in an impossible position. But after watching his competitors at the corporate newspapers take full advantage of the subsidy program without hesitation, he came around. So understand that the Halifax Examiner started as essentially a one-person operation, me. And the requirements when the whole subsidy program started were that there be two full-time reporters who are not owners, so not me. And we were smaller than that right when that program was initiated. I've always been extremely conservative on the financial side of things. And, uh, you know, anyone can do the back of the envelope uh, calculation. It's basically, we need, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 800 to 1,000 subscribers to pay for a full-time reporter. So I try to get that number before I hire someone. But we went through a, a growth stage, uh, partly because of our pandemic coverage and partly because of covering the, the mass murders here in Nova Scotia. And our subscription numbers increased 
to the point where I was able to hire two full-time reporters and so then be qualified for it. But also right at that stage, I was, I was, um, experience extreme burnout myself and recognized that the examiner needed to grow in order to ease the load on me or the examiner would kind of um, fall back to being a one-person operation again and, and not be very interesting, to be honest. Similarly, at the Narwhal, hiring practices have shifted to match the government program. Here's the Narwhal's editor-in-chief, Emma Gilchrist. At first, when we saw there was going to be the the labor rebate for journalists, it made us think differently about whether we were using freelancers and contractors, for instance, versus having full-time employees. So we started to move more of the people who we were working with regularly into full-time staff positions. So it really encouraged us to do that in order to get the labor rebate. For the Narwhal in particular, there was one government program that had a way bigger impact than the wage subsidy. And that's a new designation for news outlets called the RJO designation, stands for Registered Journalism Organization. You need to be a QCJO to apply, but once you are a QCJO, you can then submit to become an RJO, if your news outlet is structured like a nonprofit. And the reason why you might want that is that this status allows you to act pretty similarly to a charity instead of a business. Our charitable law in Canada is really antiquated. So lots of countries around the world would see journalism as a public good and allow nonprofit news organizations to act similar to a charity. But in Canada, we weren't allowed to do that until this registered journalism organization status came onto the scene. So what that's meant for us is that, you know, our donors who are giving money to a nonprofit organization for a public good are now able to get a tax receipt for that um, and that you know, helps us encourage people to give. It's a good incentive for folks. It also allows us to accept grants from philanthropic foundations, um, which can provide, you know, good like startup or runway funding uh, for new initiatives. So that's been, I think of all of the changes that the government has made, creating the, you know, a way for nonprofit news organizations to operate in Canada is probably the, the best one. We got that status about a year ago. We found out last March and over the past year, we'll have added 15 full-time staff to our organization. So it's allowed us to grow. I can't credit that all to that registered journalism organization status, but it definitely opened up the possibility for philanthropic foundation funding for us. Look, if the outcome of this is that a small digital outlet added 15 staffers to their newsroom, that is undeniably a good thing. And hearing Tim say that the labor incentives encouraged him to grow his business, provide two good jobs to reporters, and and save himself from burnout, that too is a good thing. Of course, nothing comes for free. Readers always surprise me, and, and I'm glad for that. Taking government money seems to put us in a compromising position for some readers. I've had people get very, very mad that we did the subsidy thing. Uh, But the overwhelming response was, I get it, man. You you need to take whatever money you can. And that kind of surprised me, just how supportive people were of that. They they thought it was a, a signal that the Halifax Examiner was a mature financial operation. Uh, which I think is true. And this was just another uh, uh, example to potential subscribers and to readers that that we're taking this seriously. And we're not, I I don't know why I would leave money sitting on the table when I could, when I could use it to hire reporters. 
every news organization trying to keep journalism alive in Canada has their own standards. And a non-negotiable principle to one outlet, it's not going to matter so much to the other. Emma at the Narwhal, she said that she would not feel comfortable with ads, like the ones that we run here, because she would be concerned that that would promote consumerism, which goes against the Narwhal's core principles. Me, I just really like mattresses and meal kits, and I don't see how selling them hurts our coverage. There's no perfect model for funding journalism, in my opinion. Getting money from advertisers isn't perfect. Getting money from sponsored content isn't perfect. Having your hosts read advertisements isn't perfect. Philanthropic funding isn't perfect. Government funding isn't perfect. So I think you have to acknowledge that none of these things are perfect and do your best within that, right? And to me, the key to that is being transparent about where that funding is coming from and and whether there are any trade-offs involved in that. I also think, you know, there's lots of sources of government funding that have been completely uncontroversial for a long time, like the periodical fund. Like the periodical fund has been around for many, many moons and um, it hasn't been really political or controversial. And because these new programs like the labor wage subsidy and and all that are, are new, like it's totally fair and a good thing to apply scrutiny to those and to look at how to improve those. Applying scrutiny to those things is specifically one of the things that we do here at Canada Land. I mean, most people don't even know what the Canadian Periodical Fund is. They don't know that before the newspaper bailout, Canada had a magazine bailout. That's our bread and butter. We've been doing that kind of reporting for years because no other news outlets seem to really care about stories like that. But if we began to take money from that fund, it would, at the very least, complicate our ability to report to you about it. So that's our non-negotiable principle. That is one very specific example of how money changes things. And a tiny one compared to what I'm about to tell you. The Online News Act gets two private companies involved in the future of Canadian news in a permanent and crucial way. And those two companies happen to be Facebook and Google. How might that change the landscape? We just don't know yet. But I can tell you a bit about what it's done so far. Over 100 selected news outlets in Canada have already struck deals with Facebook and Google because the tech giants wanted to get ahead of the Online News Act and negotiate things on their terms. Those news organizations who we rely on to report on Facebook and Google, well, they all had to sign confidentiality deals. We do not know the terms. Now, of course, everybody, including us, we want to know how much money is involved. But that's not even the most important part of the secret information. No, the biggest hidden detail up until now has been... What exactly do these deals say Facebook and Google are paying news organizations for? Whatever the ultimate sum is, how is it determined? Is it based on how many people click on a news article? Or is it based on the quality of the news content? Maybe it's based on the number of journalists that each news organization employs. This is a key question about incentives, and it's been a huge mystery. Until now. We found this buried on a YouTube video with 94 views. It's Richard Gringress, Google's vice president of news, when he was interviewed in February as part of a panel presentation from the Canada 2020 organization. 
Richard, how does Google decide how much it should pay publishers for their participation in your showcase? What criteria are used? Is there a formula? And why are these deals kept confidential and secret from the public? So um, showcase, and by the way, I, 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 let, me, let me touch on those criteria. And we use that consistency around the world. Um, so even in Australia, for that matter, the showcase arrangements uh, were done against that criteria. Uh, first, as I mentioned, and, and we've actually been highly influenced by the criteria of the journalism tax credit in Canada. Um, so we do look to support organizations, as I said, that provide comprehensive general interest news. Uh, whereas we can't count the number of journalists in the newsroom or audit the number of journalists in the newsroom, the other thing that we look at is uh, how much content are they producing? How many news articles are they producing? So that does help structure the rates. Uh, and yes, we do look to some degree at their existing audiences. Uh, you know, what is the size of the market they're serving? Uh, but the primary components, as I mentioned, is the really is the amount of volume, is the volume of content they produce, which is a reasonable and easily accessible element. For In other words, it's quantity, not quality. That's the incentive. And it's a big incentive. In Australia, where this kind of legislation first appeared, one community news chain has said that they expect big tech to fund up to 30% of their editorial salaries. That is staggering. If it works out to the same here, and Google did say that they're using the same criteria all around the world, and you combine that with the 25% salary subsidies from the Canadian government, well, you're looking at a media where some news organizations are getting more than half of their editorial costs covered by a combination of government, Google, and Facebook, while other news organizations get nothing. If I sound like I'm wrestling with something personally here, it's because I am. I don't want to talk myself into abandoning our principles, but I also don't want to endanger the company that I created out of pride. As long as I'm the one making the final decisions, Canada Land will never take media salary subsidies from the government. That's a promise. But all of the other stuff, the tax breaks for subscribers, the tax breaks for donors, the money from Google and Facebook, the guarantee of equal placement of your content by Facebook and Google. That's part of the Online News Act too. All of it is adding up and up and up. Like Tim, I'm seeing the writing on the wall. In 10 years, or even five, will it even be possible to stay in business if you're not on the inside track of these programs? How long will companies that are rejected or who refuse to participate be able to stand their ground on an increasingly uneven playing field. Let me cut to the chase here. Uh, I'm looking for advice. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm trying to make my own grown-up decision as somebody who people rely on, you know, for payroll and also our, our subscribers rely on to do something that doesn't feel great, maybe, but uh, to find that middle path or something. But I don't know. What do you think? What do you think I should do? So I would say do it. Yeah. But it's not just up to me. That's your Canada Land podcast. We rely on our supporters for its existence. And in return, we try to include them in our big decisions and show them how those decisions get made. We have a big decision to make about whether or not to pursue some kind of government status. And we've recorded a staff meeting 
in which we discussed it. And yeah, it got kind of heated. We've edited and released that recording as bonus content available to the people who pay us to do this work and have a stake in it. If you are a Canada Land supporter, check your feed. It's waiting for you. And if you're not, well, you can be with just a few dollars a month and a couple clicks. If you want to join those supporters and hear that conversation about the future of this company right now, just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you write to me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you can and should subscribe to Common's new series about the Afghanistan war. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby. Tristan Capicchione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, if you like this show, our main source of funding is from listeners like you. Support us. Go to canadaland.com join or click the link in the show notes. It takes just a minute.